Welcome to this week's Another Day in the Discourse edition of Spin Cycle, the media show that tries to make sense of the chaos that is our 24-hour news cycle, broadcasting from the stolen lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, lands for which sovereignty has never been ceded, always was, always will be Aboriginal land. I'm Jess Lilly and joined in the studio as ever by Cracky reporter Charlie Lewis. G'day, Crack. I was about to say, g'day, crikey. G'day, Charlie. You're not the first person to, to say that. And I suppose it's the I'll... alliteration. <laughs> Evening, Jess. Hello, everyone. And tonight we are delighted to welcome Mianjin's editor, and Esther Anatolidis, back into the, back to the Spin crew. Welcome, Esther. Hello. So nice to be here. Oh, it's always wonderful to have you. Uh, sticking with the theme of Mianjin, we're going to be talking to Dr Eugenia Flynn, who, alongside Bridget Caldwell-Bright, is co-editor of Mianjin's Spring. 23 edition devoted entirely to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders, uh, Torres Strait writers. I've, it's like I'm inserting words today. We do not know what is going to happen. Um, a fabulous, um, uh, just a fabulous collection of writing and it'll be great to hear um, Eugenia talk about how that came about. So first up tonight, uh, let's have a look at a bit of a media brawl, a brouhaha happening over in the UK uh, with uh, the investigation by The Times and Channel 4's Dispatches program. And um, trigger warning, we will be discussing um, some some issues around um, sexual assault and it is into allegations of rape, sexual assault and emotional abuse against, four, uh, against Russell Brand by four women. Uh, Russell Brand, of course, is the former comedian, now conspiracy firebrand and so-called <laughs> wellness broadcaster, always annoying, relentlessly in the annoying. Can I say I love that title, former comedian? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> He's definitely not funny anymore. Uh, never was. Uh, anyway, no. that's just my opinion. Um, it's uh, The piece in The Times, I don't know if either of you read it, it's incredibly yeah. thorough and it was a four-year investigation. Um, it started, you know, by one of the organisations, they joined forces. It, it really, you d- actually don't get investigations like this much anymore. The amount of um, resources that was put into it by... And time. And yeah. time um, by, by two of, you know, the biggest kind of um, establishment... Um, news outlets uh, in the UK is um, is enormous. Um, but, of course, doubts were instantly cast over the credibility re- of the report by some really credible characters. Uh, in the first 12 hours after the story broke, no less than Jordan Peterson, Elon Musk, Tucker Carlson and Andrew Tate came riding to Brand's defence like the four horsemen <laughs> of the incel apocalypse. Oh. Like There's mine's, Charlie. Yeah. It, it is It is a veritable conga line for our times. Uh, I mean, it says a lot about... Um, it says a lot about where we are, doesn't it? Um, that it instantly became a sort of... It, it just instantly became culture wars fodder. And as we were discussing this earlier, Charlie, I mean, you made the point that those ex- exact same four voices um, would have had a very different opinion if Brand was still the sort of darling of the left. When he was a, of the of left. A, an elfin pansexual joyous figure <laughs> of the left, writing slightly. Um, and I guess I should like, I, 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 I want to maybe make it like sort of clear that like I say this as someone who was rather fond of Brand and his his peak. I know that you guys were, no, were smarter I always than me. Thought he was a <laughs> massive creeper, but you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, looks um, but, but in in my early twenties, he. You know what? Actually, I, I will spare our listeners no, the, look, the therapy big, session. Big respect, because, oh. <laughs> no, big respect for for the outing because people like this 
have become uh, successful, have generated their sense of credibility for, you know, for for reason. Yeah, for sure. And I do think part of it, I think we have to also be acknowledge that he was getting up on stage with people like Owen Jones. He was going and mm. uh, visiting, you know, striking nurses and supporting Ed them. Miliband. He was, uh, he endorsed Ed Miliband. So he, he, he had a certain amount of, and his, 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 Book. He was a Labour guy. He was a Labour guy, and but, but well, he was actually he was uh, a um, Libertarian. Don't don't vote at all because oh, we'll bring right. about the leftist well, revolution. Was... <laughs> he 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 just said things yeah. to say them, didn't he? I mean, yeah. he he co-edited. I forgot this until I was looking into it. He was like co-editor of the New Statesman for a special edition. That's how like that's how much we kind of like validated that guy and his. Um, uh, actually, he also probably... had a column in the. Um, it had a column in the Guardian yeah, for a long yeah, time. Yeah, for a long time, for a long time That's with his right. uh, extremely verbose. Um, and again, he, he convinced us all that he was smarter than he actually was, and um, and ourselves that we were smarter than we actually were. At least in my case, because we yeah. Um, but I think like so yeah, as you say, there is there's an element of like well, there's, this shows the, the the coldness and the cynicism that that after these allegations have been made against him, people who would have been absolutely dancing on his grave are now coming to his rescue because he's now shifted into the, as you say, the the, the kind of wellness conspiracy theory uh, kind of fed YouTube, mm. right? Well, the wellness thing, I mean, I... Um, <laughs> uh, you, you may well have heard those uh, phone pings uh, <laughs> 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 as someone was uh, just letting me know. He is um, uh, part of the Kundalini Yoga uh, sort of movement, which uh, mm. is very controversial in a, in and of itself, uh, and has its own history of um, ha- of uh, gurus who uh, abuse mm. their positions, um, and he has taken on this sort of cult, as Sophie just very in no in no uncertain terms just messaged me, um, and <laughs> it's I mean, it, but he has taken on this position the way he presents himself. I mean, he went on the front foot before the, before the investigation was broadcast on Saturday. On Friday, he um, posted a video to his YouTube channel, which is now full kind of um, anti-establishment conspiracy mm. Which he's been doing for a very long time. Yes. So it, it, just splits, it just slots in perfectly with what he was already and doing. His, his message was that, you know, he is some, some kind of a... There's, there's an ulterior motive by the mainstream media who he's calling out. Yeah, yeah, I just yeah. want to make it really clear clear that um, that uh, Russell Brand, one of the um, one of his biggest employers last year, was that fringe film franchise Minions. <laughs> <laughs> so this concept that he is in no way mainstream yeah, is yeah, just yeah. incredibly laughable. But it's it, very, yeah, yeah. It's and it's this. There is this. There is a real sort of modern kind of phenomenon with you know the blending of social media and culture wars and you know. Um, the anti-truthers and the media is lying to you. Uh, mm. it, it's a it's a really great get out of of anything. You know, he, yeah, yeah, yeah it's for sure. A, he can he can manipulate this stance that he's been building up, and and a number of people mm. have been questioning whether he kind of knew this was coming. <laughs> and I mean, he has must been have cultivating this audience. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Right. I, again, as someone who's read both of his books, his <laughs> memoirs. <laughs> I mean, I mean, Charlie, useful, uh, it's all my coming goodness. out. It was. Did you have look, a subscription to Nuts or Zoo? <laughs> Never. No, no. He was. He. Uh, again, I'm gonna. I'm gonna. I'm gonna spare our listeners the therapy session that you're. You guys are gonna get after the microphones get turned off about my working through of this whole process. Um, uh, but you know, there, there's a. 
there's a big thing in in the in the article. One of the one of the women who's made these allegations against him says it was very clever. He came out on the front foot and said, "Look at me! Look what a ridiculous figure I am! And look what a, a girl crazy sex mad boy I am!" And he made that so so fundamentally part of who he was that the idea that anyone would come up and say, "Well, this was actually non consensual," it's like, "Well, why would I have told you all this stuff already about about what a sex mad fool I am?" It's you know, it kind of it, it was it was immediate camouflage. And he's also mm. yeah, always well, that's why it was called the whole investigation was called in plain sight. In plain sight. Yeah, and yeah. you know, I want to be really clear that some of the allegations are absolutely horrific, mm, mm. horrifically violent, demeaning. In incredibly manipulative, manipulative. One yeah. of the victims was 16 years old. It's a real. It's really brutal. It's not just a, mm. a famous guy who you know got a bit crossed ha- a few boundaries. Yeah, yeah crossed yeah. a few boundaries is, and used his fame so, to so his ugly. advantage. Yeah, and that story of the taxi driver, mm. uh, yeah, which we seen yeah. report in a few instances, who who took the sixteen year old there, who realised suddenly where he was going, who then stopped and said to her, "Share uh, share his concerns. I, I really don't yeah. think you should be. Are you absolutely sure you want to I go? I wouldn't want my kid here? going in there. I wouldn't want, want my daughter. My daughter. Mm. You know, the the the, the, the taxi." driver. Driver. Mm. But then, Charlie, like you were saying earlier, he was saying things for the sake of saying them mm. um, and building a persona and a profile around that. And it kind mm. of really goes to, you know, between social media and conspiracy theories and... Um, and cults of personality and, as well. And cult personality. He's and, a very charismatic and, figure. And culture wars. Mm. What are the ways in which, you know, masculinities are being... Um, uh, established, a, a, a being um, presented mm. for people of all ages, younger mm. people in particular, to look up to, um, and in that kind of you know cluttered culture war kind of um, you know competitive market for uh, a masculinity that one can admire, uh, one does tend to go towards the extremes if you want to be that person who is who is uh, going to to stand out. But yeah, that yeah, yeah. notion of saying things to say. Things Things makes me think of, and this is a, this is uh, not analogous in terms of um, allegations of assault and so on. When we look at the roller coaster of, say, a Mark Latham, um, mm-hmm. a, uh, a, a, a Warren Mundine, um, the the infiltration of, or not infiltration, the, the the working with political parties using different platforms in different ways. Um, Coming into conflicts, um, saying outrageous things, saying completely yeah. outrageous things, and also a bit of a sense of going wherever the heat is. So, yes. th- like, so Warren Mundine can be uh, president of the Labour Party. Mark Latham famously very nearly became a Labour Prime Minister, or yes. or at least, conf- you know, could have could have done that. And 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 as we've talked about, Russell Brand made part of his name by being sort of a. a, a, a a, a campaigner for for a sort of socialist leftism, mm. um, and then as soon as that kind of doesn't work out for you, or starts to that 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 flame starts to fade, I'll be as reactionary as you'd like. But if also, you don't like these views, I've got others. Like. <laughs> it's exactly that. <laughs> but, but then, but also, you, but not only that, you go that way with unbelievable, with more vehemence than you ever did in your first version of who yeah. you were. And so, have we just got um, tighter or, or much, much looser integrity radars because of the way that we receive news and communications? Are we just kind of... I mean, mm. the 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 fact that this is um, played out in the media as it's, it's a four-year investigation, it's a thorough, thorough 
thorough investigation. And then the narrative continues along that pattern. Here are the women. Uh, here are uh, the people who are going to support him. Let's focus now the news on on the women and their den- and, and, and his denial instead mm-hmm. of what's actually happened. We, we respond in the media or too much the media responds to the latest yeah. culture wars turn as though mm. it's, hello, we're experiencing this for the first time. <laughs> I know. <laughs> whether it's climate that, change, actually, whether it's, you know, yeah, well, that's what are we doing? Point, and I think that's something that we'll probably get to a little bit later in the show is, is that people, there, there are certain actors in the discourse that have the cheat codes that can drop a phrase in and they know that they can completely change what's being talked about with that phrase. And I guess, we'll, again, we'll get into... I mean, we spoke about that last week in terms yeah. of, you know, the, the, the insidiousness the, 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 yeah. of just saying so-and-so says and you can pretty much print anything in a headline. Mm. I think as well, though, the um, to get, you know, back to the kind of the media discourse around brand, that... Um, there has been a lot of reflection by um, reporters in terms of what the media looked like at the time um, yes. that it all happened to allow him to sort of, you know, hide in plain sight, I guess, not even hide, to sort of exploit this that, those aspects of his character and, and round them out as some sort of just, um, you know, risky, crazy, zany guy, which he, mm. you know, which he, which he said in interviews, you know. Um, there was an interesting piece by Marina uh, Hyde in The Guardian um, where she, she titled The Brave Victims of Russell Brand's Misogyny Deserve Full sport, Support, This Time Let's Get It Right. And she talked about the context of the time, you know, that real lad culture in the UK um, mm. that was alive and well back then. Even, you know, you look at the music, it was Oasis versus Blur. Yeah. Oh, well, that, that was yeah. probably, yeah. Like, you know, that was, that was right. a bit earlier. That was yeah. Like, but it was, it was the continuation of, the, of that particular cultural experience. Yeah, he, which, you know, he became yeah. famous via Big Brother, which was, you know, very much about, you know, getting who can get the drunkest and all that sort of stuff. Mm. But, um, you know, Marina uh, Hyde, it turns the, her lens on herself as well and and she went through um, all of the sort of work at The Guardian at the time because the thing that really took that, I mean, the only thing that um, that had got Russell Brown fired back then was that terrible phone call that, that he yeah, on Ross... Yeah, when he, he and Jonathan Ross Jonathan left Ross. a series of messages on... Andrew Sachs, who yeah, most famous for playing um, Fol- uh, Manuel, Manuel. Manuel on Fawlty Tower. Yeah, mm. um, and so Marina went back and looked through all the articles in the uh, in the Guardian, um, her own employer, to see if any ho- of them had um, been written from the point of view or in the defence of um, Andrew Sachs' granddaughter, who you know famously um, Russell. Uh, Jonathan Ross blurted out. Blurted out. Yeah. Yeah, he's had sex with your granddaughter on this recording and the only outrage was really on behalf of Andrew Sachs. Yeah, like how huge amount you, of that. Yeah. You know, treat this, um, you know, beloved figure in our, like that, mm-hmm. that's so mm-hmm. demeaning. But the everything written about his granddaughter was just pure ridicule. And um, Marina Hyde was <laughs> shocked to go back and find absolutely nothing in defence of, of um, the granddaughter, only, as I said, scorn and ridicule, including in one of her own um, articles. Uh, she had been quite dismissive of, um, of, of the... Of, uh, what's her name? George... Georgina Bailey, of Georgina Bailey's complaints about what had happened and, you know, she, she was just unrelenting about, like, this was a terrible time for women in the media. 
I don't think a huge amount has changed if we look at the treatment mm. in this country of, say, Brittany Higgins <laughs> by mm. the media yeah. uh, as, time's gone, has, as time has gone on. Um, the, you know, the, the reporting has become more vicious. Um, but, yeah, it's just it's, it's interesting to see that. Um, yeah, yeah, no, I mean, I think the, 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 the vast, the, the kind of the general sense of most progressive reporting on, 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 the, on, on Saxgate, as it was called at the time, was this is, um, and, and to be fair, this, this, there was some truth to this, it was hypocrites in the right-wing media who were making a big deal about it because they wanted to attack the BBC more than they wanted to attack Brussels Brand at the time. Mm. And that was, that was, what, the, that was what it became. It became a very easy culture war thing that everyone could just slide into their usual positions and be like, this is just hypocrisy and prudishness from the right without any real concern for, yeah, Georgina Bailey and, and what that must have been, how humiliating that must have been for her. Uh, I feel like we've had enough of Russell Brand. <laughs> oh. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's, it's vile. It's, you know, we, we, we need to throw our arms around uh, everyone for whom this is really ugly and triggering. Mm. Um, and it's just, yeah, we, we look across it and think... Like what? What is it going to take for, first of all, for reporting of this kind of stuff to just be a little bit more adult, a little bit more responsible? And then you look at the people who are supposed to be prosecuting these matters. And mm. so what's their attitude when they look at the reporting and think, oh, it's all a bit of a laugh, is it? Mm. Oh, you know, all these important people are, are, are supporting him. You know, that's a real culture. That's a, you know, that's a, it's a real culture for police and others in mm. positions of responsibility. Well, I mean, the Met Police have come under a huge amount of um, criticism for their handling of, of sexual assault cases anyway in the last 12 months. But as it turns out, um, a police unit that investigated Jimmy Savile, ironically, that was one of the interviews that came to light, mm. um, a conversation between Jimmy Savile and Russell Brand was yeah, aired is, as part of the dispatch. It was just like, appalling. Like everything else has to be couched in allegedlies and criminal matters, etc. Cetera, et cetera. That, that is uncontested as far as I'm it's aware. It's just chilling. And it's, it's genuinely cold sweat inducing, mm. that, that conversation. So that same <laughs> police unit is now investigating Russell Brand and, you know, he can cult himself as he can turn himself into some sort of cult f figure anti-establishment uh, media cult figure as much as he likes but hopefully um the hopefully there will be some sort of justice for those women you know yeah. as part of that report yeah triple r on fm digital online on demand podcasts and via the app so a thing that I, and again I think as as uh, as Esther made clear in her analogy, there's not a direct comparison I'm drawing between the two figures here. But I think one of the things that I, I kind of thought the other big one of the other big news stories from this week was the uh, the reporting that um, that Scott Morrison now is is working on on a, on a book and that, that will be coming out sort of mid next year, um, which will be kind of he he uh, he promised that it would be. Um, a, a, a book unlike any other written by a former Prime Minister, which I... Mm, I, I, I don't I, doubt that at all. I, and that's the thing is that if, for once, Crikey has been very, very... Um, has really lasered in on uh, Morrison's relationship with the truth, but I think he's being pretty sincere on that one <laughs> because it's basically... It's going to be called Plans for Your Good, a Prime Minister's Testimony of God's Faithfulness, and it's going to be essentially a, a very um, explicitly Christian uh, book about his time in office and and kind of it's a really interesting. Dude knows where the money is. Well, but yeah, so there's a, there's a lot of um, has been made. He's it's, it's going to be uh, published by um, Thomas Nelson, which is a one of the Christian imprints that is owned by HarperCollins, which is News Corp's publishing arm. 
Um, and it's interesting looking through uh, all, all the books that they kind of put out. It's 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 books like The Great Disappearance, 31 Ways to Be Rapture Ready, mm. uh, The Awe of God, The Astounding Way a Healthy Fear of God Transforms Your Life. <laughs> mm. And it's this really interesting thing of like um, – it just feels it just feels like a very very modern thing like of the kind of intersection of like this search for and I think a very sincere search for like the numinous the kind of the awe the awe of it what it is to exist and then like filtered through this very like self help vibe of of language in a in a sermon in Perth on the weekend he claimed he had stepped down <laughs> stepped down as prime I, minister I absolutely loved that there's it's just like, no end there is just no end to it there's just a like gorgeous like <laughs> It's it is remarkable, this, and the yeah. good people of um, of the publishing company describe this book as it, mm. it's going to be honest, vulnerable, mm. and reflective. Yeah, just so like his time in, in three office. adjectives nobody's <laughs> ever used to describe I, Scott I'm Morrison. I'm going to say I think it's a, a bit like when the. Um, when the the story broke of him having taken on the secret ministries a few months oh, after yes, he yep. was he after he stepped down uh, from the prime ministership, <laughs> done with the role. Such, I uh, love that. It's such an amazing way to frame an election, isn't it? The way that he yeah that phrasing and and that there was like that big kind of press conference where he was just like doing. The, the Morrison that we kind of come to know and um, Despise. feel a lot about <laughs> when he was in office. And you could just enjoy it as a spectacle because he wasn't in charge anymore. And it's that same thing of being like, he's still got it. <laughs> the old gunslinger still got it. <laughs> well, maybe instead of a secret ministry, you know, he'd clearly been after a, a religious ministry. But, but I've, I've got to say... I think say, that's what he was trying to do the whole time. I've got to say, on a, on a, on a serious note, you know, about, about religion... Um, you know, we all we all have people um, in our lives who are devout of, of different faiths. Absolutely. And when I um, discuss religion with them or their belief and their faith, um, I often have um, some wonderfully critical and, and reflective times of, of being able to understand what their faith means to them, what mm-hmm. it means culturally for their community. And I have to say, um, this could be because, you know, I've raised Greek Orthodox, but it's it's, it's you know, I, I don't belong to any faith. Um, I look at the way that Scott Morrison has always either professed his faith or the kinds of language he uses or the snippets that he allowed to be broadcast of, mm-hmm. you know, being mm-hmm. in the, 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 the great big performative kind of environment there in that church. I have never found his faith plausible Mm. I've never found it plausible that he has a religious faith. I think about, you know, becoming a Sharkies fan, becoming the Daggy Dad. Mm, And mm. so I just, I find it very difficult to relate to people taking this seriously. It's interesting. The thing is, though, that 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 ties into the Pentecostal, what's the core of, like, Pentecostalism, isn't it? The the Hillsong. That's what I'm not getting. Well, because it's deeply, um, the the faith, inverted commas, is deeply tied into material gain it's the and idea wealth. Of the, the prosperity gospel. Prosperity that, that, gospel. That mm. the, the acquisition of um, of wealth and power is a sign of God's favor. Favor, and it's, yeah. so it's, a, it's quite a convenient um, worldview for for someone of Morrison's. I think it's hold. very yeah, different I, to someone of you mm. know a core sort of you know. Um, 
Christian or Islamic faith. Mm. But I do, I, wonder, I do genuinely. Uh, I think it's the way that he communicates it. Mm. You yeah, know, like yeah. I, it, it's not so much the tenets of the faith. I just not convinced. <laughs> and so then I, I look at now, you know, this book and the context in which it's going to be marketed, and it really just feels like another performance. Mm. Well, I mean, and, and he has been very. He's been very open and said, well, like, you know. Uh, it's not a book. For, it's not a book for the, the Canberra bubble. It's a book that I, w- I that I would like. You know, for example, the US to really get into. <laughs> well, he's um, been one looking. Of those yeah. He has been looking for his way out for a while. You know, yeah, well, that's that, right. that, that, he touted yeah. himself for some top jobs in Australia, and he just wasn't going to be that guy. There was a sense was... that he was slightly in too much of. You know, he he had a bit of a tainted brand um, by his time in, in 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 office, so that he he didn't want to quit cook until he had a decent gig to walk into. Mm. If he can break into the evangelical market in the US and he'll be mm. he'll be he'll be set for life. I mean actually but I do I just want to say I, I do want to um I, I genuinely don't know with him and faith. I, I, I veer between the the idea that it's it's quite a convenient joined up idea that you can just like slide yourself into gives you a bit of a patina of, of gravitas and you can kind of move up. But but then sometimes I genuinely do wonder if it might be something that he kind of really did inculcate and that it's that it has genuinely kind of affected his his decision making in office and and his way of viewing the world i ge- look i genuinely don't know i genuinely don't know well it's just it's impossible to to know with, or with, to with trust like any aspect. So opaque, there, yeah. um, and then speaking of um you know again this it, it it's become so normalized in our social expectation our political expectation um given um you know how much he plummeted that sense of integrity that we expect of politicians it's become normalized that we think it's fine that he should mm. just stay there earning a taxpayer salary until something better yeah. comes along. Whereas D- today, off to the old conference and oh, yeah. that's right. Uh, whereas today we hear that um, Frydenberg, Frydenberg um, <laughs> has been announced as the next chair of Goldman Sachs in in our region, and so he's expected to make the announcement that he will not be uh, <laughs> yes, yes. Uh, trying to win back his former seat. Of course, his chances of doing that were not great, mm. particularly given the approach that um, the current leader of the Liberal Party, Peter Dutton, is taking in terms of um, the values of the well, of the brand and the, and, and, and and the trashing mm-hmm. of them. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so he's doing a very smart thing. But there's someone who, um, you know, has had a Julia Gillard level of um, maintaining dignity yeah. post, um, post... For sure, uh, for sure. I, political I, career. It's a funny thing, isn't it? Because I think we were talking about this in, in, in the Crikey Office today and we were saying how, like... Yeah, an announcement of that, like like every every form position is briefly a consultant. And you go, well, that's a, that's a holding thing. You, you pocket your dosh and you wait till you can get back in. But but a gig like Goldman Sachs, you're like, oh, that's serious. He's actually he's yeah. not coming back to politics. No. And, as, and as you say, um, there is not a there is there is some alternative history liberal sane liberal party that he could have been the leader of, but that doesn't exist right now and you don't really see where he he would fit in the current. And will it mix. ever again? No. Mm. And I, I genuinely hope that he still has a voice inside the party because that party um, is is really uh, so disconnected, so fractured. It's at least three different parties. Um, I look at Julian Lisa's position um, and voice in that party yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and the fact that, you know, we would have had um, a really uh, lovely ethical public, uh, p- publicly ethical um, bipartisan voice conversation um, if Peter Dutton hadn't decided to introduce... Um, uh, conflict over this, and and, mm. and um, um, it's you know this 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 party has been a strong party historically in Australia. Yeah, yeah. 
Triple R. Dr. Eugenia Flynn is a Larika Tiwi, Chinese, Malaysian and Muslim writer, researcher, arts worker and Vice-Chancellor's Indigenous Postdoctoral Fellow at RMIT University. Her essays, short stories and poems have been published widely, including in Indigenous X, Peril magazine and the anthology Me Too, Stories from the Australian Movement. Eugenia's academic research focuses on Indigenous ways of writing and engaging with Indigenous texts. Along with Bridget Caldwell-Bright, Eugenia is the co-editor of Mianjin's Spring 23 issue, which is devoted entirely to works by Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander writers. Welcome to Spin Cycle, Eugenia. Hi, thanks for having me. Thanks so much for joining us and congratulations on a really brilliant and beautiful and mind-blowing and challenging edition of Mianjin. Um, Thank you, thanks. In your editorial intro, you address um, both the need for publications like Mianjin to engage and platform Indigenous writers, but also acknowledge its shortcomings. And I quote, how can Australian literature reckon with its very core, built on the denial of First Peoples' sovereign words and sovereign storytelling? What sort of editorial approach did you and Bridget take to grapple with these sort of conflicting truths or positions? Yeah, so our approach really was to uh, push the boundaries in lots of different ways. I think literature is um, an idea that we think of as being high art. Um, Mm. There's a wonderful Cherokee writer and academic, uh, Daniel Heath-Justice, who kind of writes about literature being this kind of thing that is elevated. It's elevated above writing and it is it also elevates the reader when they read literature. And, you know, we really wanted to um, push the boundaries and to consider, um, you know, emerging uh, maybe people who, who are being published for the first time Um, as well as, you know, extremely well-established writers as well. So we wanted to publish quite a mix what people might not expect from something that is considered, you know, a kind of high-art literary journal. Um, And also, I think, to consider, you know, different forms as well. You know, I think that we have seen um, across kind of literary criticism the way that people think about... Um, you know, different form and the voice that, you know, Aboriginal people use and all of those sorts of things. And we just wanted to be as inclusive as possible. There was something that, um, I mean, something that I find really interesting as well is that this is coming out in this moment in time. How did that weigh on you in terms of how you were looking to, you know, structure and structure the, the overall magazine um, and and the voices that you were platforming? Yeah, I mean, I, I assume that you're talking about the fact that we're, we're now in referendum mode and we're moving yes. towards a referendum <laughs> for the voice. Yes. Um, look, I, I think one of the things that we wanted to do was to not engage with that. I think that um, the writers that we have chosen have naturally, some of them have, mm. not all of them. Actually, you know, only a very small number have, have naturally wanted to write about that um, and so that they have and they've written absolutely wonderful pieces with really interesting commentary but we decided actually to work through the theme of place so mm-hmm. you know when we talked before about the kind of editorial and the way that we considered our approach one of the things that we really thought about was 
um, you know, working through our ways of working. And our ways of working are always connected to country. We're sovereign people. So we wanted to work through our sovereignty, our connection to country, this theme of place. And that's what we put to our writers. That's how we... And, and I guess in terms of selecting writers, we didn't think about the voice at all. We didn't think about, mm. um, you know, kind of that... Um, you know, what's happening with the referendum. We picked writers that we thought were, um, you know, going to have something to say, have something original to say, going to say it beautifully, mm -hmm. have beautifully crafted words. Um, and also, you know, as I said before, that kind of mix of people that we that you might not think, you know, I think that literary establishment can often just go to the same writers again and again and again. Mm -hmm. And I think we've uncovered some new voices in this as well. We we did both um, Bridget and myself curating and picking people and we also did an open call out as well. So, you know, we feel like we kind of achieved what we, we set out to. Uh, Eugenia, uh, this is Charles here. Again, I just want to I want to echo what Jess said. Um, congratulations and thank you for for this. It's been um, I think quite a dispiriting time to um, to consume media in Australia, and this has been a really really wonderful necessary corrective to that in a lot of ways. So I I, I want to say thank you for that. Um, in terms of the um, I suppose just for the readers who don't know, and actually I'm, I, the listeners, I wouldn't know this either. Just talk to us a little bit about the, the mechanics of what's involved in putting together a kind of a big, weighty, ideas-laden um, literary publication like this. Yeah, look, it's really a team effort. You know, Bridget and I were guest co-editors, so we did work with, you know, Esther, Anna Toledis <laughs> and Tess Merthwaite um, from Me Engine. So we, we did do um, kind of teamwork together. You know, I think it, it takes um, a lot. The, me the mechanics are, you know, thinking through your ideas and how you want to approach things. And then a lot of it is actually just lots of admin chasing people, <laughs> you know, working through things. Um, and then when you start to receive the works, you know, there's always lots of herding cats. Yeah. But then when the works start to trickle in and you read them, you know, it's just beautiful. I mean, some mm. of the pieces actually made us cry. Mm. They're just absolutely wonderful. And, you know, you can sit with the words. Sometimes you work really closely with a writer um, and sometimes you don't. Sometimes you, you know, you go, okay, this requires really minimal um, editing at all. And with some of them, you know, you might sit with a writer and kind of go through a back and forth, you might actually speak to them on the phone and talk through their ideas, what they're really trying to say, just to help them um, bring forth what they're trying to say in the best possible way. It's, for, for the obvious reasons, I've been holding back asking questions because, of course, as the editor of Engine wanted to... <laughs> yes, get full to disclaimer. Full disclosure. Full disclosure. Esther has some interest in this some subject. Great interest. <laughs> and I've got a lot of interest in telling you that there's a, a launch tomorrow night at Readings in Carlton where you can meet these people personally at 6.30. Um, but... Um, uh, a few weeks ago, I had the great um, pleasure of being in Brisbane uh, in, in Mugginjan for 
the Queensland uh, Literary Awards and mm-hmm. um, it was just so amazing to see so many winners um, of those awards be writers who Eugenia and Bridget have selected mm. for um, uh, for this edition. So, um um, Maria van Nieven winning an emerging prize, Melly Sayward and others. Um, Eugenia, um, one thing that we sort of discussed sort of right at the outset, like, you know, last year was, you know, this is this is not about the voice. This is the voices that um, that mm. Australia needs to hear. And um, when I think about just specifically the poetry in this edition, when you said that some of the pieces made you cry, can I ask, was it some of the poetry? And can you tell us a bit about some of the extraordinary poetry in this edition? Okay, I, I don't like to play favourites. Uh, no, 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 no. <laughs> that's I'm not, I'm fine. Not gonna say, <laughs> no favourites. I'm not going to... Um, I, I think, you know, uh, did some of the poetry make me cry? Um, uh, no, actually, but it definitely moved me. Yeah. I, I think that there's probably um, a couple of pieces that I, I will talk about, and that's not to say that I think that they stand out or are better, but I just I, I found them interesting from a kind of... Um, you know, when they were coming in and, and, and how they kind of play with form. Yeah. So the first one is probably Maya Hodge. Mm. Um, I think her I piece, was just she, thinking she about uses, this. Mm. Yeah, she uses redaction and her poetry is in the style of um, when you go into a museum or an institution and they have an artefact mm. and they have the label. So yeah. it's actually in that form and then the actual description is kind of the poem and the object speaking. And so then and then there's also just, you know, she, she sort of plays with the form in terms of redacting words. So um, I think that that's a really interesting piece. The other one by Lulu Houdini and her mother, Boo Badley, um, they wrote two poems separately and then they actually combined them together for mm-hmm. the engine. And I just thought that was just a, a really lovely, it's just a, a lovely exercise for them to undertake and for, you know, to have that specially done um, for the edition just feels really great. It really does. It was interesting you said, Eugenia, you were playing with form a bit because there is something really great about um, the form of this and it's there are some real disruptors in it to just sort of shake you out of the idea that you're just reading a, you know, a literary magazine, whether it's the incredible imagery or even just the way that some of the things are, are laid out like that. You mentioned at the top that you did an open call out for submissions. What were Mm -hmm. some that came in that were just, you would never have anticipated commissioning, but really just sort of hit you and surprised you? Yeah, so we did have, um, we had someone who's actually really well established put through um, a submission, I'm not going to say who, Um, (laughs) and that that was great. And they sort of actually put through more of a proposal than an actual sort of draft of anything mm. and we worked with them on that and I, I thought that that was, that was really a wonderful experience. Um, I think also, you know, in terms of like pushing form, we did things like um, there was sort of three poems that came through on submission by Philip Bell and we looked at those and, you know, sort of the, the poetry at that stage, um, we sort of reached our, our quota for that. And we, we thought about what those poems were and he had written a little bit about what they what they were and how he had written them. 
and um, I rang and rang him and spoke to him on the phone. And so, actually, that one is just an incredible piece. Um, you know, it, we decided to categorise it as memoir because what he told us on the phone is that he had, you know, he was um, 70-odd years old. He had lived this incredible life and he'd written these three poems across his life. He'd never been published before. Wow. And he posted them on Facebook and a family member said, you should submit to this because wow. you should publish your poetry. So that's why he did it. And, oh, my goodness. You know, we just thought, what a great, you know, kind of... Um, the poems tell his life story and we decided to include all the other parts of his Facebook posts. So um, he kind of talks through, you know, the poems a little bit about his life and um, then he posts this kind of mm. screenshot of a, a DNA test and we, we put that in there as well. Mm. But just, um, you know, it's great to think that we've published this person for the first time and um, <clears throat> I, I saw him sharing that, <clears throat> sorry, on Facebook and um, just saw the incredible response he was getting from his family and friends. And, Amazing. Uh, you know, I think, that's, I think that's really great and he just has such interesting things to say from his perspective and, you know, a really full life and family history and all of his experiences, um, especially sort of military as well. So, yeah, it, it's just really great to include his voice in this edition. And maybe Facebook isn't just the screaming pile of turbulent <laughs> <doesn't have> <laughs> discourse that we all thought it was, just on this very one tiny occasion. <laughs> Amazing. Uh, yeah. uh, you know, we've talked a little bit about the um, – and you, and you identify in, in your editorial with Bridget about the um, – the tension between, um, uh, and again, I'm quoting here, that what majority non-Indigenous Australian literary sector considers, quote-unquote, literature, and how this indirectly or purposefully excludes Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander writers. Um, I think, I guess, going forward, maybe this is a, a, it's quite a big question, but going forward, what do you think the kind of role and responsibility of a publication like Mianjin is in, in these kinds of debates? You know, um, I was giving a talk today because, this is my research area. So, mm. you know, I was sort of considering this today in the kind of context of, you know, someone was asking about um, when they're teaching students and they're reading First Nations literature and how how to engage with that. And, you know, um, Janine Lane, who is, has a, a piece of short fiction in the edition, and obviously well-established Wiradjuri poet and writer and educator and academic. You know, she has um, written about black on black critique and she has theorised about, you know, um, the importance of and the way in which um, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people can engage with their own work through literary criticism. And I think that that's super important. So I think that... You know, having um, Aboriginal writers, publishing Aboriginal writers is super, super important. I think it's also important to engage Aboriginal people in literary criticism, in editing, mm. in publishing, mm -hmm. in being tastemakers because we might have different, we might not, but we might have different ways of 
um, putting together an edition or thinking through genre or, you know, what we would consider um, an experiment or, you know, all of those sorts of things. So I think that, you know, in that kind of um, taste-making side, having Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people in those positions of decision-making and power and taste-making is important. 100%. And on that um, amazing, powerful note, thank you so much, Eugenia, for for joining us tonight in this conversation. Dr Eugenia Flynn uh, is a co-editor of Mianjin's Spring 23 issue, which is being launched in NAM tomorrow night. At Readings Carton from 6.30. So get along and definitely, and if you can't, just... Buy it. By it's amazing. Thing. It's really, it's, really good. <laughs> it's really worth reading. It's a balm for the for the discourse <laughs> late in times that we're in. Three, triple, And just like clockwork, we have another uh, headline in the media which <laughs> massively misrepresents someone to make a point about. Uh, a new uh, government policy. The headline, it's the Financial Times. No, it's not, sorry. It's the Australian (laughs) Financial Review. I had the Times on my mind. The headline is, I'm not rich, I'm a single mum. (laughs) Classics, they just don't grow old, do they? Airbnb tax hits property owners. So... I mean, I I think the funny thing about the AFR, which I think we've established in the show, is that (laughs) it does both the best and worst stuff in the world. Uh, some of it's so great, some of it's so strange. I mean, I actually can't, I mean, I'm actually not making any judgments about this piece because I I, uh, I I, was thinking about this as we came into the show today. I'm like, I'm less depressed than I was last week. And it's like, oh yeah, I was sick for a couple of days and I didn't read the news every day for this week. So I kind of missed this whole yeah, thing. No, so this just, is great. just help, talk, talk Let me through talk it. you through it. I'm actually just going to go a little bit paragraph by paragraph because it is just a lesson in how you... Um, how you frame something, what you leave out and what you choose to put in there. So the first um, paragraph is Leanne Taylor is a single mum of two teenagers who uses Airbnb to help her stay ahead of rising interest rates, higher energy bills and more expensive groceries. So we've got single mum battling, uh, Mm. you know, in tough financial times. Uh, Then it talks about the new policy and then... The former real estate agent and hospitality worker now works as a sales executive <laughs> but has three Say the line. Yeah. But has three properties which she rents on Airbnb. She is already feeling the effects of the state governments. We make that point again. Uh, I'm just going to stop right there because <laughs> I went on her uh, LinkedIn page as well as being a former real estate agent and ho- I did not see hospitality worker. I think they had to dig deep for that. Um, yes, she works as a sales as, as an executive at the moment, but the second line in her LinkedIn um, bio was the founder and owner of a company um, that uh, actually um, is a linen service for Airbnb proper- properties. Provides a linen <laughs> service for Airbnb properties. Um, I'm pretty it's sure layer upon layer of profit. I'm pretty sure the author of this piece, Patrick Durkin, would have seen that entry in her LinkedIn um, in her in her LinkedIn bio but maybe I'm quibbling about details of it and disclosures here but let's go on Miss Taylor's properties are a two bedroom apartment in Kew owned by her self managed super fund that just means she owns it and she that's right. yeah that's it there's no uh, the 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 attempt to distance her, her as an owner from the property there is kind of weird 
Uh, and then it's like, which she will hopefully use to retire. So we're putting her retirement into the frame there rather than her just having a, an investment property in Kew, one of the most expensive suburbs in Melbourne. In Australia. That is proper investment property one. Investment property two, her previous residence in Williamstown. Not sure what the fact that it's her being her previous residence has to do with anything mm. at all. It is just another property that she owns in another incredibly well, it, expensive suburb. It, it, it's the same. It's in the, Melbourne, it, it's the same level of relevance as saying that she once worked like in a sushi bar or did yeah. some kind of hospital job. It's yeah, like, exactly. It's just framing, isn't it? Uh, which is now an investment property and a holiday holiday house in Torquay. <laughs> Strike three for unaffordable place mm. to live for most Australians. Australians, and then it says that her family shares with other holidaymakers. I mean, it's just bizarre. So this is her, this is the you know the framing of the single mom of two teenagers using Airbnb to help get her by in tough economic times. And then you know three paragraphs down, no, and oh no, sorry, I've, I I missed the the pay, payload because it came after the ad. <laughs> then we get a quote from Ms. Taylor: "I'm not rich." If I was rich, I wouldn't have to rent my properties out. I'm just a single mum working hard to build a future for my kids through property and additional revenue streams. <laughs> it is just extraordinary. It really is. Just the, the, the normalisation um, <clears throat> of this kind of wealth as, as mum and dad things, the <laughs> fact that a story about... Um, uh, looking at controlling um, Airbnb uh, needs to have someone wheeled out with so many caveats and errors. I mean, it's almost as silly as, um, you know, dressing up a young man and putting him on Q&A to spruik yeah. um, <laughs> nuclear power and not mentioning that he's a young Liberal member. If only we had time for that. Oh, I totally only. forgot about that. But unfortunately, <laughs> it's time. Maybe we're going to have to tide that one over to next week. It's time for us to get out of here. Thank you so much, Esther, for joining us. Lovely to be here. You are welcome always as ever. And huge thanks to Eugenia and yourselves and the team at Mianjin for that wonderful spring edition of Mianjin. And that's all for this week. Thanks for listening. You can find us every week on your favourite podcast platform. And you can follow us on Twitter at Sample, at Lily Juice and at The Shuffle Diary. You can also listen in at rrr.org.au via On Demand for the radio version of the show. Want to support Spin Cycle? Become a Triple R subscriber. Your subscription helps keep the station running and helps Triple R produce and create great radio and podcast content like this. <laughs> 